All right, I'm going to have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We uh, began this sermon series on the life of Moses. In order to understand the life of Moses, you've got to go back to the book of Genesis and the promises that God made there to the beginning of the Hebrew people so you can know why Moses needs to do what he does. We talked first about how Abram uh, was called out of Ur as a moon worshiper, maybe even as a devil worshiper. He was called out. Uh, God made a promise to him. We'll see that in a moment. He had a son, Isaac, and the blessing continued through his son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. The smartest of the bunch was a guy named Joseph who ends up in Egypt, and uh, th this is how that worked. The Lord said to Abram, he said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they'll be so servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. He says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now, God made this promise to Abraham in 1846. That's when the clock begins, 400 years of wandering, going through the desert, of suffering, of struggle. But in 1446, 400 years, you will have become a great nation. I'm going to lead you out from under that bondage, and you will be uh, come into the promised land. Now, part of God fulfilling that promise is that he had Joseph sold, sold into slavery down in Egypt, but where he was bright and had God's blessing upon him, God raised Joseph up. His brothers ended up coming down there because he became the second most powerful person in the world, next to only Pharaoh himself. After all the brothers get down there and they're living there in Goshen land, they're about ready to meet the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh himself. Here are these bunch of shepherd goat herders that they're coming before the guy in the White House. And so there's a certain protocol anytime that you're coming to stand before someone in a very powerful position, you kind of prep for that meeting. So Joseph, who again is the, like the vice president of the world at that point, he he gets his brothers together and he said, now, when Pharaoh calls you in and he says to you, when he asks you, what's your occupation? Watch, boys. You shall say, your servants have been keepers of the livestock. All right, now, I'm sure he said to his brothers, now, let's practice that. Your servants have been keepers of livestock. He says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So whatever you do, brothers, don't tell them that you're shepherds because next to watching grass grow, watching sheep eat grass is the most boring job in the world, and that's the job for stupid people. That's what all our, our dumb people do. That's the worst job in all of Egypt. Everybody in Egypt, in Egypt looks down on them. It's the worst position you could have. So whatever you do, don't tell Pharaoh your shepherds because he won't respect you. That he, that's an abomination. And so you can just see him. You guys do it with me. Act like I'm Joseph and you're Joseph brothers. Pharaoh's going to call you in, and your job is that you are keepers of what? You're keepers of what? Whatever you do, whatever you do, don't say that you're a keeper, you are what? Shepherds. Don't say that you're shepherds. Whatever you do. Okay, you got that, boys? All right, so we go to chapter 47. Joseph goes in, and he tells Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and they are now in the land of Goshen. That's prime real estate there in Egypt. 
And from among his brothers, he took five. Now, I know he's just thinking, I'm not going to take them all. I'm going to take the five brightest ones in there because I know Simeon and Levi, they'll choke, all right? So I'm going to bring them in, just five of my brothers. And he presents it. Hey, Pharaoh, here are five of my brothers. I just wanted you to meet them face to face. So what do you think Pharaoh's going to ask next? What do you guys do for a living, right? So here it is. Pharaoh says to his brothers, what, are your, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. I can just see Joseph sitting there like, oh, my gosh. No wonder daddy put me in charge. You know what I mean? I mean, just you can't do one thing right. We rehearsed this over and over. They blew it. Now, that's going to be important later. Just remember that story, okay? Now, they're wandering in Canaan for 190 years. They go down to be with Joseph. For the last 130, of, uh, for the next 130, they're there living in prime Goshen land. The population goes from 70, 75 to 1.2 million. And then because the Jews were growing so quickly and the Egyptians were worried about their numbers and the men becoming more powerful than the Egyptian men, there was this mass genocide of Hebrew boys, in 1526. Now, during that mass genocide, that's when we see Moses born. And then Stephen, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says this in the book of Acts to the, to the people of the, the Jewish leaders. He says, at this time, Moses was born during that genocide. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. So what's he explaining here about Moses is, man, he came from the Hebrew people. He's adopted to be the king of Egypt someday, and he is at the top of his class. He's got all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he's a great speaker to the, to the Egyptian people in the language of the Egyptians. And he has mighty deeds. Now, what were some of those deeds? We talked about it last week from extra-biblical sources, uh, other historical books. We see that Moses was the general of the Egyptian armies. And he took Pharaoh's army along with some Hebrew people and he conquered the Ethiopians. While he was there, I talked about this last Sunday night, while he was there, Josephus writes that he married an Ethiopian princess. He goes back to Egypt thinking that the people of Egypt are going to say, you're the greatest. You, even though you're Jewish by birth, we recognize you as the king of Egypt. You're going to join both nations together. And he gets back, and how do the Egyptian people react? We don't want you. We don't want you. And he's thinking, well, maybe I'll defend the Jews and I'll deliver them because I'm a Jew at heart. So he goes to his people, and while he's out among the Jewish people, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating on one of the Jews, and he grabs that Egyptian taskmaker, taskmaster and he beats him so badly that he kills him. And he tries to cover it up. So here you have Moses when he's roll, rolling back into town, and he's on top of the world. But then Pharaoh finds out, his adoptive grandfather finds out that Moses has turned on the Egyptians and he's siding with the Jews. And he's killed an Egyptian. So Moses fled from Pharaoh and he stays in the land of Midian. And he sits down by a well. Now where is Midian? Midian is called Midian because it is literally in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of the desert. Any direction you go from Midian is closer to civilization. 
he went as far away as he could from anybody seeing him because he didn't want to get busted for this arrest warrant they had for him back in Egypt. He's hiding out. He's laying low. Here he is at 40 years old, sitting by a well. Have you ever heard, man, they live way out in the back of Egypt or something to that effect, right? You've heard that expression? Like, this is where he is. That's Midian. The princess of Ethiopia has left him. He's divorced. He's sitting in the middle of nowhere. But this is what the Bible tells us about Moses. At 40 years old, he learned to be content to dwell with his father-in-law, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Now, what does he do while he's with his father-in-law? Watch this. This is why I shared this story earlier. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Not only is he working for his father-in-law, 40 years later, he still doesn't have his own business. He's still living with his wife's dad, working for his wife's dad. And what's his occupation? He's a shepherd. He was raised an Egyptian. He thought like Egyptian. And here he is sitting out in the middle of nowhere. He used to be a multi-gazillionaire, and he's raising sheep. And for 40 years, he's sitting there feeling like a loser. But somehow during that time, he learned to be content. Now, a lot of times I do my applications at the end, but I want you to hear what I'm about to say next. Because I'm putting it right up front. This is the main theme for today. Until you learn to be content in your current life situation, don't expect God to give you a new one. Until you learn to be content in your current life situation, don't expect God to give you a new one. Forty years he's in the desert. Heard a quote from Abraham Lincoln yesterday. Man, I thought this was powerful. He said, if I'm given six hours to chop down a tree, I'm going to spend four of it sharpening my axe. Preparation. And my, my brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today that God sharpens the axe of our hearts while we're sitting in the desert. And sometimes... It takes 40 years. Sometimes it takes 40 years of a bad marriage. 40 years of a job you hate. 40 years of dealing with a child that is difficult. 40 years of a chronic health problem. 40 years of childlessness. 40 years of fighting addiction. 40 years of being rejected. 40 years of just being alone, feeling like you are in the middle of your desert. 1846 is when that clock began. 1486 when Moses was 40 years old, he thought he was going to force the hand of God and deliver the Hebrew people. Main principle for today, listen, when it's not God's time, you can't force it. But when it's God's time, when it is God's time, you can't stop it. It's going to happen according to the will of the Lord. So here's Moses. 
80 years old now, 40 years of a nobody, but he's learned to be content. He's been humbled. At 40 years old, he thought he was something. At 80 years old, now he knows he's not. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. This word for bush, a lot of times you'll see movies, it's this big old monster bush or whatever. This is the Hebrew word for shrub. Just little. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, how many of you have ever done a campfire where you, you've got dead branches from a pine tree, the little limbs and the, and the pine needles, and they catch on fire? How long does it take them to burn? It's quick, right? Just boom. There it goes. And so Moses sees it, and it should have already burned. This little shrub should have just been gone. But he looks at it, and he's like, that's not consumed. So he, he thinks in his mind, well, I'll turn aside to see this great sight. Why isn't this bush burning? We're dead dry in the middle of the arid desert here. And then when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now imagine that being in the middle and the, the bush speaks to you. I'm here. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. The bush isn't the holy ground. It's the place, watch this. The holy ground is the place where Moses is standing when he receives the word of God. Right now, what are you doing? You're receiving the word of God. Therefore, the place where you are sitting is what? This is holy ground. Any place that we receive God's word is holy ground. And so God tells him, take off your sandals. Now, a lot of you have worked out in, in the dirt and dust before with sandals on. Does taking your sandals off make your feet cleaner at that point? The answer to that is what? No, of course not, right? So why does God take, tell him to take the sandals off his feet? Well, one, it's a sign of respect. You come into somebody's house and you take off your shoes. Sign of respect. But also, and it, this is true, especially in Appalachia, there's a saying. You come to somebody's house and they say, you guys are get ready. You're going to fill in the blank. You ready? They say to you, take off your shoes and what? Stay a while. Now, my grandma used to say from their generation, she would say, take off your shoes and Sit a while or sit a spell. That's what Grandma Jesse used to say. Sit a spell. I always wonder, like, is this like magic potion or whatever, you know? Sit a spell. I had still, what does that mean? All right, I haven't heard it from Grandma in a while. Just sit. But listen, that's what God's having Moses do. He's been running around for 40 years, being content, but not doing what God had borne him to do. Do you see that? And now it's time for him just to sit and receive God's word into his life, but he's having a hard time doing it. Some of you have a hard time doing it. I do sometimes. I, I caught myself listening to a preacher one time. I had my phone, and I caught myself. You guys never do this, I'm sure. I caught myself, like, not being able to pay attention and going through Facebook, checking online, checking email during a, during a sermon. You know what? 
But when your heart is broken and when you're knocked down and beat down, this is what God's done. He has taken 40 years of beating down and humbling Moses to the point that he is finally ready to sit down and hear the word of God. Man, let me tell you what God is in the business of doing. He is in the business of breaking people down until they're ready to take off their shoes and just sit there and hear the word of God. And Moses isn't even quite ready just yet, but it's 1446, and God is about to get on his plan. So he says this to him. He says, Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am. Now, Jesus quotes this verse in Mark chapter 12. This is awesome. You ready for this? He quotes this in Mark chapter 12 to prove that there is an afterlife. The Sadducees believe you just died, and that was the end of life, okay? Like people who believe in evolution believe that. You just die, and that's the end of life. But Jesus says, no, no, no. After this life, there's another life, and Jesus says, the way I know this is what God said to Moses out in the desert when he said, I am. He didn't say, I was the God of, of your father. He says, I am. Man, this is great. I love it how Moses would hear this. His daddy, watch this, put him out when he was three months old. His daddy didn't get to raise him, but his daddy knew there was something special about him. His mother knew. But now that Moses is 80 years old, it's very likely that his daddy, Amram, is dead. But what God is saying to him is not, I was the God of your daddy. He's saying, I am the God of your daddy. In other words, Moses, Amram is still alive, but he's with me. He's also with his great-great-great-grandfather, Abraham, great-great-grandfather Isaac, and God of Jacob. These are the guys I made the promises to, and the reason I'm showing up to you right now is to tell you I'm keeping the promise I made to your great-great-grandfather and also to your daddy. Man, what a powerful word that is. My, my great-grandfather was a guy named George Whitfield Willis. How can you not be a preacher with a name like that, right? And I just wonder, I mean, when I was a little bit of a baby, I just wonder if he prayed, may this child someday turn into be a preacher like I am. I don't know if he did or not. But all I know this is that my God wasn't just the God of George Whitfield Willis back then. If God was speaking to to me today, he would say, I am the God of your great-grandfather. And he's watching what's going on right now. I am fulfilling the prayers of these people. I am. And then Moses hides his face. He's not the God of the dead. God is the God of the living, and he's bowing before them. And then the Lord said, and I love this, Moses, I know what you've been going through for the last 40 years. Not just you, but I know what the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been going through for the last 40 years, 400 years. I have surely seen, and I have heard their cry, and I know their sufferings. Listen, I... I don't know all the deserts that everyone in this room, everybody listening online, I, I don't know all the deserts that you're going through right now, but I do know this. God sees, God hears, 
Jesus knows. And because of that, he says in the next verse, and now I, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. This is something I'm going to do, Moses. I've seen all that's been going on. It's 1446. It's time. And when it is God's time, you can't stop it. So I'm going to take them to a land of good, good and broad land, flowing with milk and honey, just like I promised their forefathers. But then he shifts the attention God does. He says, I'm going to deliver them. But then God says this in verse 10. Okay, Moses, now this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, all that Moses hears at this point is he's got to be the one to make it happen. He didn't hear the part like God was going to make it happen. All he's hearing is it's your job to go and tell him. He's like, now, wait a minute. Don't you know there's an arrest warrant for me? And this new Pharaoh is not going to look favorably. Last time I left there, I killed an Egyptian. Don't you know how that worked? So Moses says to God, who am I? I'm just a shepherd in the middle of the desert. I'm a nobody now. People hadn't heard of me in 40 years there. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of, of Israel out of Egypt? Watch God's response. He said, Moses, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. You're not doing this by yourself. And this will be the sign that I've sent you. Someday you're going to bring the people out of Egypt, all two million of them, and you're going to serve God right here on this mountain where you are right now. God is answering Moses' Moses's excuses. So here was his first excuse for not doing what God's word told him to do. It's this, I'm inadequate. And I would say for most of us in this room, a lot of times we read the Bible and if we see what we're supposed to do. God reveals his will to us just like he did to Moses. And we think, I can't do that. I don't, I don't have it in me to do that. I'm not good enough. And what God is saying to him, listen, I'm going to be with you. You can do this. And Moses says to God, God takes that away. I'm going to be with you. You can do it. And Moses says, well, well, if I come to the people of, and, of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. This part of what we're going to be talking about at Bible study. This, this phrase here, this is the first time in the Bible where God tells us his name. And at the root of it, just a quick version, I am who I am. I am the God who exists. I am the only God who exists. He, Moses grew up in Egypt with all the false gods. They might have been demonic gods. But God is saying, make no mistake, there's only one God in heaven, and my name is Yahweh. Jehovah is his name. So this is what you say when you go back. The God who is real sent me to you. The God who exists sent me to you, implying your gods don't. Say, I am has sent me to you. And then God says, because he's omniscient, he knows the future, and they will listen to you. 
And the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. They'll go to Pharaoh, and they'll say to him, Yahweh, Jehovah, the real God, the God who exists, the God of the Hebrew, he, is, he has met with us, and now please let us go on a three-day journey in the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, God said, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Man, I want you to see this about God. We don't know all the answers, but God does. He knows exactly how Pharaoh is going to respond. Sometimes people get shaken up with this. Like, well, didn't Pharaoh have free will? Man, I can't explain all that. All I can tell you is, does God know the future? I can ask you that question. The answer to that is what? Yes. And if he knows the answer, he knows how someone's going to respond to the word of God. He already knows you today whether or not you're going to receive it or reject it. He already knows it. And this is where Moses gets hung up. He says, what if I go to them and they ask me questions I don't know the answer to? And this is excuse number two. He says, what if I don't know all the answers? Do you know if you poll Christian people, the number one reason why they don't share the gospel with their friends, you know what the number one reason they give? I'm afraid they'll ask me a question of which I don't know the answer. I'm afraid I'll ask the question of which I don't know the answer. Okay? Uh, Isaac McCown, won't you come up here, Isaac? Okay? Really smart guy. Okay? Come on up, Isaac. You, maybe you're not the best guy I should have picked for this, but I'm going to bring you up front anyway. Okay? So Isaac was a Jaeger scholar. Has anyone ever asked you a question about apologetics that you didn't know the answer? How often does that happen? Right. It used to happen a lot, right? I mean, that's why it's like when I was in my dorms. Guys would ask me questions, and I'd say, I don't know. How many of you have ever been in anything that Isaac's ever taught? Raise your hand. Okay? Now, he says, I don't know sometimes. How many of you still would go back to one of his classes? Raise your hand. All right? Most of them raise their hand. All right? So here's what it is. Just because he would say, I don't know, is it going to keep you from respecting him, from going back to him? In fact, let me throw this out. The one thing that will keep you from going back to him is if he gives you the answer to something he doesn't know and it's wrong. Then you're like, I ain't going back to that guy because he thinks he knows and he don't. And don't pretend. And, and don't pretend like you do. Okay? All right. Go ahead. Thank you, Isaac. So that's what I want to share with you this morning is, man, you don't have to know all the answers. The question is, does God know how this conversation is going to go? And the answer to that is what? Yes. And if, you, if somebody asks you a question you don't know, you say, I don't know, but I'll find out. It's okay. Okay? That leads to excuse number three that Moses is going to throw out there. It's, it won't do any good. They won't listen to me. Man, listen. If God tells you to go and reconcile with your brother or sister in Christ, listen. If the Bible says that, don't ever say, I know that's what the Bible says, but... Because the moment you say, I'm not going to talk to my husband about the Bible anymore because he won't listen to me. I'm not going to talk to my kids anymore because they won't listen to me. The moment you start saying somebody won't do something, you are usurping the role of God as if you can predict the future and know what they're going to do with their lives. And that role is reserved for God and God alone. You may know their basic pattern behavior, uh, basic behavior patterns, but they don't always do the same things. Okay? 
So don't ever say it won't do any good because if God's involved, maybe it will. Uh, Moses answers. He says, behold, they won't believe me or they won't listen to my voice for they will say the Lord didn't appear to you. We don't believe you. We don't believe your experience. But Yahweh says to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, well, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a servant and Moses ran from it. Now I want you to picture that. Moses is 80 years old, all right? Now, he probably hasn't run in 15 years, right? I mean, he's just watching sheep. That's a good job for if you're 80 years old. Watch sheep. You know, you just sit there, right? Probably hasn't run in 40 years. But you, you tell me, you know what? You throw a rattlesnake in front of Coach Ward here, watch him run, okay? He'll get out of the way of that rattlesnake. Coach Ward probably pick it up and eat it, all right? But... You're like, I'll tell that rattlesnake what to do, okay? So Moses is like, ah! He gets away from there, all right? And then God says to Moses, watch this. This is an act of faith on Moses' part. Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Woo! Poisonous sin. But he does it. Finally, we see Moses doing something that requires faith. He does it. He reaches out, and it becomes a staff in his hand. He says, you'll do this, that they might believe that the Lord of the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now, what does Moses do next? He gets it. God's stripping all of his excuses away. And Moses says, okay, I'm going to try this one. I don't word things well enough. And so Moses says to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, here's what I want you to see from this. You remember what Stephen said was true of Moses when he was 40 years old? He was power in deeds and what? Words. He did used to be a good speaker. He did used to be able to speak with eloquence. Maybe it was in the Egyptian language and not Hebrew, but he had the ability to speak well at one point in his life. But now he's saying, God, I was never any good at any of that. I'm not good. Listen, he knows better. He's gone from giving excuses to God to doing what? Lying to God. I can't do that. I'm not good at that. I mean, this excuse here, I just, I don't, can't do that. I mean, it's, uh, it reminds me of when I was in high school and I'd ask girls out on a date, all right? Hey, can you go out Saturday night? No, God, do my nails, okay? Every girl in East Bank had immaculate nails on Monday morning, all right? Because they had to do their nails. They had to get their hair fixed or whatever. They always had it. But it, little by little, as you take those excuses away, eventually you're going to come to the truth. And that's what we're going to see God doing here. But I want you to see first, before I go, going, God taking care of every excuse that he had, watch what God says when Moses says, I'm not a good speaker anymore. Watch. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Who knits a child together in their mother's womb with a congenital heart defect or what we would call a disability? Who makes them that way? And God's reply is what? I do it. 
I made them that way. I, uh, I fear for our country right now because we don't value people who aren't like the rest of us. And just as we saw the Egyptians aborting babies that they didn't want, as we start to discover more and more about DNA, you can tell from a child in the womb now from their DNA whether or not they have propensity for certain diseases or disabilities. And it'll be just a matter of time before we know which children, how tall they're going to be, how fast they're going to be, how smart they're going to be. Even heard in Iceland uh, this past year that they were bragging that they have eradicated Down syndrome from their society. But it's not that they've had a scientific breakthrough. It's just that they abort all those children. We're in a dangerous spot when we start looking at people who don't meet all the perfect criteria and say that they have less value. Because listen, when you take the life away or when you marginalize someone who doesn't have quite all the talents that everyone else does, you are taking away someone that God has created for his glory. Make no mistakes, my friends. Listen, every child that is born, God made them that way. I'll just tell you this morning, uh, she's here this morning. Oh, Tori, how are you? I love Tori dearly. I will tell you, my favorite voice, Tori, I'm just going to tell you this now. When I'm really down and I, I'm not feeling good, my favorite place to stand on Sunday morning and worship is right in front of you. Your voice is beautiful to me, but even more beautiful than God. And uh, a few years ago, I was having a, just a low down, it was just within last year, I was having a low down, terrible week. Terrible week. And a lot of you had given me gifts for, like, pastor's appreciation for my birthday. And, man, I appreciate that. I really do. But the day, the, the week that I was having one of my worst weeks since I was a pastor here, I came in to preach, and I didn't feel like getting in this pulpit at all. And, Tori, you came up to me, and you gave me this rock. You remember making this rock for me? It's got the American flag on it. And she gave it to me, and she said, here, Pastor Steve, this is for you. I love you. And this is the best gift I've ever received in 20 years as a pastor. I keep this in my house, my top right drawer, by my sock drawer. That way I see it all the time. And it's from you. And thank you for loving me and making my day. God makes us all special. He made you, 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 the way he wanted you. And don't ever look at what somebody else's kid has or what somebody else's life has and wish you had that because you are exactly the way God made you to accomplish his purposes for your life. Nobody else. We're all unique. 
Is it not I, the Lord? So now he's full, he's, he's tired of arguing with Moses. He says, now, therefore, I made you the way you are. You can do this. I will be with you. Go. I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. And so finally, Moses does what the girls I would ask out in high school do. They finally tell me the truth and just say what they should have said in the first place. I don't want to go out with you. I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. Why don't you talk to somebody else? That's exactly what Moses says. He says, oh, my Lord, just please send somebody else. I'm 80 years old. I'm done. And this is the first time we see God getting angry. The anger of the Lord was so kindled against Moses. He said, is there not Aaron, your brother? Now, Aaron is his older brother. Aaron's even older than he is. The Levite, he's a pastor back there. He says, I know that he can speak well. Now, look, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Man, this, this is what I love from this story. What, watch what it's saying. God knew how Moses was going to respond. He knew what Moses was going to ask for, and so he answered Moses' prayer before he even prayed it. Aaron was already on his way to meet Moses. How did Aaron even know that Moses was still alive? He's out in the middle of nowhere. Because God sent Aaron to answer Moses' prayer before Moses prayed it. That's how God works. Isn't that awesome? Man, this is the good news. I've seen it in my own life. I can give you a bunch of examples, but I'll give you one from 20 years ago. Right after I moved here, uh, I had an email from someone here on staff, not we'll give names, who said what my pay package was going to be and what my checks were going to be, okay? And so my wife and I, we moved down here. We bought the same house we live in now. Uh, we bought it 20 years up on Barger Hill. Had to do a lot of renovations or whatever. Had the mortgage payment. And we were going to be a little house poor for a while, but we, we want to live up there next to Lori Dale Hamer up there in that, in that neighborhood, all right? So we're, we're, we're moving up there. Good neighbors. Got Dan Ferguson over here. Coach Ward lives over the hill from us. Coach Craycraft. We'd like, we want to live with the, with the Canova people. So we get the house. We get in there. I get my first paycheck, and it's $250 less than what I thought it would be. Now, I don't know, but when, you, when you're making 40 a year, 3,000 a year is a lot of money. And I remember looking, and I'm like, uh, there's been a mistake. So I came down and I talked to a few people. I'm like, hey, here's what the email said I was going to make. Well, that's not what the church voted on. Here's what the church voted on. This is what you're going to be paid. And I was like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. But this is what they told me I was going to get paid. And they said, we don't have the money to pay you right now. And so then I had to make up my mind. The new guy just on staff, barely 29 years old, do I argue with my new bosses and say, but you told me or do I go home and cry about it? What do you think I chose? I went home and cried about it. I was like, what do I do? All right, so that was a Sunday. I was explaining. I thought they would fix it. I thought they'd write me a check. I got an email here. No, you're out, loser. All right, so I go home, and I'm pacing around the, the bedroom. Just about, and Dee's like, what's, what's, what's your problem? I'm like, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're going to sell the house. What do you mean we're going to sell the house? We're going we're gonna to have to sell the house. We're going to have to move down the trailer court. We're just going to have to do it. And she was like, what's your problem? And I'm like, they told me, I, don't, I didn't even want to tell her because I didn't want her to be mad at the church. I'm like, honey, I don't know. I just feel like God called us here. But I'm getting paid $250 a month less than what I thought we would. Here was the email, but here's what the check is. They said they can't change until the business meeting. It's nine months away. We're not going to be up there. I don't know what we're going to do. She said, have you prayed about it? 
Don't you hate when your wife says that to you? I just looked at her like, no, I haven't prayed about it. She said, well, let's just pray. So it was a Sunday night. We got down there beside our bed. And I'm like, dear God, I'm $3,000 short. 250 a month, Lord. I believe you called me here to Kanoa to work with these teenagers. But I don't know how we're going to pay our bills, and it's going to be embarrassing. One of the qualifications of the pastor is he must manage his finances well. If I have to sell this house, it's going to make it look like I'm not qualified. I just, I don't know what to do, Lord. And so I paused. And I said, and I said Lord, please, please give me. I don't know how you're going to do it, but you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Please give me $3,000. And then I paused, and then I thought, and this isn't going to surprise any of you that I did what I did next. But, Lord, it'll be really tight if I have 3000 So please give me $5,000. Jesus' name, amen. And then Dee prayed a little prayer, all right? She said, Lord, give us what we need. And I said, I'm praying for $5,000. So I come down to the church the next day, sit in my office. It's where Mikey's office is today, the finance office. I go in, and I'm sitting there. It's about noon, and... Phone rings. Secretary says, your wife's on the phone. Pick it up. It's before cell phones. I said, hello. She said, I need you to come home right now. I said, what's wrong? She said, just come home. I'm like, oh, gosh. So I hang up the phone. I go get my car, and I run up on Barger Hills quick. I come in the house. She's, she's crying. I'm like, what's wrong? She said, look at that card on the table. So I go get the card on the table, and I open it up. And it's from this couple that we haven't talked to in four years. They were part of our youth leadership team in Dallas from 1995. And I opened it up and said, Dear Stephen D., we were just praying this past week and God put it on our heart to send you this card. May God bless you however you need to use it. And I looked at it and I'm like, where's the check? She says, right here. She handed it to me. You know what it was made out for? $5,000. And it was dated five days before I even prayed and asked God for the money. Just like Moses, God, listen, God knows what you're going to pray. Sometimes people will say to me, listen, sometimes people will say, please pray for this so-and-so in, in surgery. And I'll usually pray right at that moment because if I don't, I'll forget. I'll, like, I'll pray right then. But every once in a while, I'll realize somebody went through surgery this morning, and I, now it's 1 o'clock. They're probably already out. That doesn't stop me. I go ahead and pray at 1 o'clock for the surgery that happened four hours ago because God knew I was going to pray at 1 o'clock for the surgery that already took place. He can answer a prayer yesterday for a prayer I'm going to pray tomorrow. Do you see that? Why? Because God knows the future. And he's with us. And he cares about us. And he loves us. And he made us the way we are. And right now, he might have you in the desert, and you're going through your 40 years or whatever, but God says, I have a plan for your life, and you can do awesome things as long as I'm with you. And so he says about Aaron being on his way, you shall speak to Aaron, and you'll put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth. I'm going to be with you, Moses, and with his mouth too, and I will teach you both what to do. What a promise from God. Now, Moses, get up. Get on your way back to Egypt right now because I am going to be with you. 
And my friends, that is the promise of the scriptures to us. It's that the God in heaven who sees what's going on in our life, when he comes and invades our hearts, he makes a promise just like Jesus did to his disciples in Matthew 28. This is the last verse, and it's not unintentional. These are the last words that Jesus gives us in the gospel of Matthew. He says, behold, look, pay attention. I am with you always to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am always with you at your side. He doesn't say I'm always with you as long as you don't get a divorce. I'm always with you unless you're struggling with drugs. I'm always with you unless you lie, cheat, steal. I'm always with you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Once God is a part of your life, he makes a promise that he will what? Always be with you. So take courage, my friends. Whatever God gives you to do in his word, don't worry about your adequacy. Don't worry about whether or not anybody else is going to listen to you. Don't worry about what's going to happen next. Don't worry about whether or not you're a good enough communicator or you know all the answers. Just know this. God is with you. And he will empower you to do his calling in your life for which you were born. 